Welcome to the Authentic Leadership Podcast, a five-part series from the Reuters Institute. My name is Rama Sharma, and I'm a journalist, consultant, and executive coach. This podcast series is inspired by a quest I started some years ago whilst on a fellowship. I was a senior editor at the BBC at the time. I wanted to explore the idea of authenticity and leadership and whether or not it's possible for so-called minorities of any kind to be themselves and succeed in the workplace. Now, the answers I gathered from leaders and research to this question have been fascinating and complex. In this series, I'd like to share what I've learned, share some of those outstanding questions that are still in my mind and explore them with some brilliant media leaders from the global south who have their own inspiring stories to tell as well. Today, we're speaking to Anup Kafle, the editor-in-chief of the global publication, Rest of World. Anup was born in Nepal and moved to the US in his late teens. In his successful career spanning 15 years, Anup has been the editor of the Kathmandu Post, as well as the editor on the Foreign Desk at BuzzFeed and the Washington Post. Anup, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So, Anup, let's start then at the beginning, really, when you were sort of leaving Nepal and heading to the US into this new world. Tell, tell us what it was like to start, well, studying and, and working there. Yeah, so I, I came to the United States in 2003 uh, for college. And, and um, I remember like um, coming in and there was this orientation week in college, the very first week, when one of the, the classmates said they couldn't understand me because of my accent. <laughs> so that was sort of like my first introduction to, to, to America. And I remember being shocked and I didn't quite know how to respond. Um, and I also remember very vividly trying to speak slower and enunciate words. Um, I used to, I used to do debate and elocution and all of those things when I was in Nepal and I used to win those contests and I felt like, you know, my, my confidence had slowly sort of like, you know, eroded, um, because of that one particular moment. Um, and that, and just like a series of like unpleasant experiences as a young brown man in a very Southern college, small town. Um, it kind of like made me feel like I had to figure out how to assimilate in this new place that I'd never been to, that I didn't quite know uh, a lot more about. And then I had to be more like them. Now, what did that, what did that look like? What did you do? Um, I think it was pretty much sort of self-censorship in many ways, uh, uh, not expressing what I thought, how I felt, um, what I believed in. Um, I remember getting like B minus or C for participation in classrooms because I just went from like a very talkative person to, to, to not speaking at all. And because I felt like being myself was inviting more pain, um, I didn't know how to handle that. And I just, I just froze. So uh, for the first few years in college, I was like a very, very different person than what I had been for 19 years of my life. Wow. I mean, that feels extraordinarily difficult. Yeah. And I think like, you know, there, there were these experiences that some of these experiences in college, even, even sort of like later, later, um, third year, 
second, third year that really kind of like shook me. Um, in one instance, I realized we had to take a Bible class to graduate. And I knew I went to a Presbyterian kind of school for a scholarship. And um, it wasn't until my third year, I realized that we had to take this one class that was entirely the, the book, the course material was just the Bible. And you had to take an exam after three and a half weeks. We had this block system, which meant that you take a class for three and a half weeks for three hours a day. And then that class is done. Then you take another class. So I was, I'd never read the Bible before, obviously. I mean, I hadn't even read Gita as, as a Hindu, Hindu man. Um, and, um, I, I, I asked the Dean, like if I could, you know, I was like, I am from a very different religion. Like I've never read the Bible. Like I, I don't know how I could pass this. And I had a good GPA until then. And they said like, no, it's a requirement to graduate. You have to take the Bible class. And I think, um, I, I, you know, sort of like the, 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 they see the South Asian instinct of road learning really kicked in and I passed with flying colors in a Bible class, even though I couldn't remember anything now. Um, but that was that moment where I felt like, oh my God, like, you know, I came here for my education and like, this could be a huge obstacle. Like if I failed that class, I would, you know, I would fail essentially. Uh, there was that moment. And then the second one, um, felt very, very personal. And I, and it was sort of like that another moment where I felt like I had to sort of censor myself a lot. I had to sort of like not challenge institutions or not challenge kind of like not, not make other people angry. And, you know, I was the editor of the college newspaper and, um, we've done this like huge expose on how student athletes were dealing with drugs on campus. Um, you know, it had a lot of like anonymous sources and, you know, we had photographs and it was a blockbuster story that even the local newspaper kind of like picked up. It so happened to publish on, uh, a homecoming day, which is essentially sort of like this big moment, um, on campus. And, and, uh, the, I remember the, the, the Dean of Students and like that, that, that office, uh, pretty much like threatened to deport me if I didn't reveal my sources. And I was just like, I, I can you even do that? And I remember there was this huge tussle between my professors and then the school administration. Uh, and that really shook me as well. So there seems like in the cases that you revealed, there were, there was actually a real cost to cost to being authentic, whether that was not passing your exams or not graduating or being threatened to be deported. Yes. And I think like, and I try to think about what, like, you know, I remember this other news editor who was a very good friend, a white woman, like they wouldn't have told her, like, if you don't do this, we'll, we'll deport you. And it has a real cost. Right. So for me, I was just like, oh my God, like, I know in order to achieve what I want to, which is become a journalist in this country, I need to work hard. I need to do challenging stories like this, but I'm going to face things like this. Um, so, uh, that was a difficult moment. And I think it does added to that, that kind of fear. And I feel like I've operated out of fear for a long time, uh, in this country. I mean, that obviously changed a little bit later, but like my initial years were just, just, um, scary. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I kind of want to, you know, move on to the point where you have now, despite your fear, you, you know, you've still successfully got big jobs in various companies. What was that like? I mean, I think like, uh, when I started working at the Washington Post, which was my second job, um, after I had like graduated, um, I think 
there were a lot of lessons learned because I was there for a long time, almost six years. And I was working like 17, 18 hours a day. Um, I wasn't making a lot of money. I didn't know how to even ask for a raise, even though I knew that other people who were doing similar jobs in the same office were making more than I was. Um, you know, by the time it had been about 10 years since I'd left home, um, moved to a new country, I felt like I was letting my family down. Um, I wasn't sending money home as, as you know, a, a, a lot of people who come from my part of the world are expected to do to support their families. And I also just felt really, really alone. Um, I had this like feeling of being stuck, this feeling of like, you know, as if like I was a pressure cooker and I was going to explode. Um, and um, I think it was around 2013, 2014, like when I called my father and I just cried. Uh, it was a Skype call, um, and I think that was the first time I cried after coming to this country, like with my parents. And I basically said, "This is very, very hard here, and I feel very, very alone, and I don't know, like you know, what to do. I feel like I work very hard, but nothing is happening, right?" Um, and you know, obviously, my my father sort of pushed me to keep calm, like work hard. You know, there there was sort of like values that he instilled in me, which was sort of like, "If you work hard, it'll pay off." And and um, I think like my time at the post was also that that period during which I tried to change my outlook a bit. After that, um, I was reaching out to leaders who were people of color, um, who probably went through some of the similar experiences. I started asking questions more, um, sharing my opinion more, um, and I think to to some degree, I think like you know this is when like Twitter was like really kind of proliferating, and Twitter helped because you saw that people expressing themselves. Uh, so that me gave, gave me a little bit of con confidence. Um, but there's just like one particular moment um, in the newsroom that 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 I want to talk about, which I remember sort of like vividly even today. There was this devastating earthquake in 2015 in Nepal, and it had turned into this major global story. The, the whole world was there, BBC, CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, obviously. Uh, and I'd helped report on a few stories from Washington, like, you know, I got my like, front page bylines. And, and there was this meeting, editorial meeting one week to plan future coverage. And I watched, like, these editors propose uh, a play-by-play, -play, call it TikTok, of, like, essentially how the earthquake played out on Mount Everest, base camp, um, and impacted about a dozen Western, you know, American climbers. And I remember asking why we'd invest so much in doing that story while these whole swaths of like cities and villages were just they turned into rubble uh, across the country and more than 5,000 people had already died. Um, why wouldn't we try to focus on that and, and, and focus on these like 12 specific deaths on Everest? And... Um, I remember one of the editors just without saying anything, just shrugged, just like in the emoji. And and I think about that moment a lot. Um, I, I was obviously in, you know, I was obviously changing jobs right around that time as well, but that, that moment stayed with me. It reminds me of some examples I've heard, experiences I've had myself, but equally examples I've heard from other leaders about thinking of stories of niche or which audience is important or for whom is this or this story for? Um, and that sort of hierarchy that can play out um, in a newsroom. 
Absolutely. And I think like, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in making sure you serve your audience, um, you know, through the stories that you do. And I think like, this is also where sort of like, you know, when we talk about why we need uh, a diverse newsroom, it's to sort of like give some perspective, right? When you have a magnitude of that kind of, um, you know, that kind of devastation, um, I think any audience will connect with the pain of people. Um, and it's also sort of like the choices you make in terms of investment. Like, you know, where are you putting three reporters and a multimedia team to do something versus whether you're, it's not that you're not covering it, but how are you covering that versus the other stories you're choosing to cover? Um, that's important to me as a person of color. And I, and I thought like that moment was pretty telling. And it's not just, I mean, you know, that's an example from the post, but we've heard about examples like this from people in the industry almost every day. So. I mean, there's a lot that you said there in your experience and in that, in, in, in what you shared at the Washington Post about, you know, feeling quite working really harder, but not really getting very far, um, feeling like a pressure cooker. I mean, it sounds again, you know, it sounds really difficult. How did you navigate these kinds of situations, whether it was the fear in the university to then go to the job and then this sort of pressure cooker environment that you find yourself in? I think like, you know, after, after sort of like, you know, going through those situations and that, that feeling of frustration, I think I was, I was starting to be out and about a bit more. I started building allies. I, I really leaned on people who looked like me and talked like me uh, a lot more, both within the newsroom or sort of like, you know, people who I met at conferences or just like people I reached out to. Um, I think I derived strength from their confidence and from their success, knowing that what was possible, right? Um, I started prioritizing more what I was experiencing, what my strengths were, um, and how I was showing up at work every day in meetings, at networking, happy hours. I think I learned to kind of like take control and learn to be my own ally as well. And I think like a lot of this had to do with sort of like, you know, I, I felt like this is an immigration thing. I'd gotten my green card and, you know, for, for people, who know America and who've been here for a long time, like, you know, if, you, if you've worked and that, that uncertainty about your immigration status is just, it's, it's, it's really painful. Uh, you know, that it's one of those things that actually like sort of makes you censor yourself because you feel like you're going to get penalized. And I think once I had that, I think I'm, I, I probably developed a, a kind of confidence that allowed me to, to, to be more of who I am that coupled with the kind of people I was interacting with, uh, you know, it, it gave me a different kind of like, playing field. Uh, and that was very helpful. Uh, I also I also changed jobs. And I think like when you start in a new place, you feel like it's a new beginning. Uh, and BuzzFeed, um, which BuzzFeed was a fun place. You know, there was a lot of experiment happening. Um, and I felt like the team was very, very diverse. I moved to London and, and I think like London naturally feels like more cosmopolitan, more diverse. But also this, the, 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 the culture at BuzzFeed was um, more of a culture of empowerment. Even though you're like a young kind of um, editor, um, I felt like I received more regular feedback from my boss. The conversations I was having with, having with colleagues were really nurturing, really helping. Um, nobody ever told me they didn't understand my accent in London, which was, which is good. Um, yeah. And that, that was sort of like the, 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 I mean, beginning, I think the beginning was the Washington Post, but I think I really kind of like found my footing um, when I was at BuzzFeed. 
So is it a conscious decision to then move into a different company? Yes, yes, because I, I realized what was possible. I real I mean, you know, I mean, I was going to get a raise that was um, going to, and that was useful for me. I was getting married and and <laughs> money is important. And I have to think about my own life. Like, again, that prioritizing myself, right? I think recognizing that I need to think about myself, only then I can kind of like think about my work and I can think about people around me uh, was useful. So it was a conscious decision to sort of like make that shift because I knew that after spending that much time that I was capable of doing more. It was also kind of like, how do I challenge myself now? So uh, what's like my next step? Sorry. Am I right in assuming you were saying that be part of being in a part of a diverse team also helped you be more authentic? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, part of part of that, like, you know, what my colleagues look like and, you know, what my boss looked like and what people who sat next to me looked like. And also like you know, I was I was editing reporters who were covering Syria, covering the European migrant crisis, but I was also told, "Hey, you make decisions on what we cover." Right now, that's I mean, I know it was a different job, but that made a huge difference. That basically meant that like they fostered my my instincts, my experience, my decision making ability, and and that's a huge confidence booster. And your editorial viewpoint. Yes. Yes. The way I presented headlines and 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 the way I mean small things like you know telling the newsroomers like hey Kathmandu is actually pronounced with an H I know there is an A B style but it's Kathmandu so you know being I mean that's a small thing right but it's the right thing to do um, and and so for everything from kind of like instances like that where what you said in a meeting was valued or that they need they wanted to hear from you and other people liked me um, that's that's really kind of like boosting in terms of confidence. Well, no, you, I can hear it in your voice, just that sort of the transition from making that decision to um, really think about yourself and how you're showing up and how what voice you have in an organization to finding one that can allow you to to be more of yourself and want of an to world. So what happened after that? Um. So after that, I, I, I remember like I moved back to the US. I, I took this like, you know, another job um at a publication called Roads and Kingdoms, um, which I had a lot of fun. I'm 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 obsessed with the idea of food. And this publication focused on international relations, international sort of reporting food. And I moved back home. I think I had this like feeling that I'd been in America for such a long time. I wanted to serve um my audience, my people. I wanted to do something back home, share the knowledge that I'd gained. And then um yeah through various kind of like things i'm i'm back here in the us now and i'm 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 working at this newsroom where you know i i started out with a team of 5 and we are now 30 people and i think a lot about authenticity in terms of what kind of leader i am because who i am and how i lead um makes a huge difference to people who work here and what kind of leaders they want to be and what kind of people they want to be i think like you know I, I think about the younger Anoop a lot and I don't think, I, you know, I talk to a lot of younger sort of, especially like Brown students, um, you know, whenever I can like, you know, give time and, and, I, and, I, and I feel like nobody should have to go through that kind of painful experience of not being able to be themselves. And do you feel you can be yourself now? Absolutely. Yeah. 
I think like it's also it's also the culture of this place. Like my boss is incredibly supporting. Like I report to the CEO and the founder. Um, my team is very supporting. Like you know, I mean, I've hired uh, a team that is very very international. A lot of our editors come from the countries that we cover here. Uh, we assign reporters who come from the countries and communities that we cover. And I feel like I'm getting to do a lot of those things that that had you know that that were in the back of my mind that I felt were the right way to do journalism, um, and um, yeah, I, I don't look back a lot, but I think about like you know how I how I you know what I tell people uh, who ask me like how did you do it like you know how do you do do acts like how do I overcome this um, you know. So there's two related questions to that one 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 is sort of i'm just wondering how do you show up like you know if you're saying you're very conscious about authenticity in the workplace if you know how do you demonstrate that in the workplace if for others who may want to do the same i think like you know i mean i i stay very true to the beliefs and principles that that i grew up with um and i think about uh, the values that define me as a person. Um, there's this like one experience at BuzzFeed, like, you know, with one of my friends, like, you know, he, he asked me a lot of questions about my upbringing, my faith, my traditions, my family. And I try to think about that because those conversations made me reflect on who I am and how those experiences have shaped me. And that awareness makes a vast difference when you are kind of working. And I tell this to to people who ask me about like, you know, well, how do you become successful when you're a person of color? Or how do you navigate this thing in a, in a newsroom or in an organization? Um, I mean, I talk about absolutely like ask for help. You need to seek support sooner. Uh, there's no shame in saying that you need help, um, that you're lost. Um, I think like, you know, that's why like finding allies and people who, who are like you is so important, uh, which is why we need more diversity in newsrooms. Uh, but also really kind of like reflecting on your core values and and um, seeing if you're drifting away from what you truly want to do. Uh, I think about that a lot because I think oftentimes, like I said, you know, that idea of self-censorship, doing things um, to please people, I think like, you know, I, I it's kind of like, are you doing things to make other people comfortable or are you doing things comfortably for yourself? I, I think that's also an indicator of of, of whether you're kind of drifting away from who you truly are. Um, and it's okay to work hard and, and feel immersed in your work, uh, to obsess with your work. But are you also feeling a sense of fulfillment uh, or are you becoming someone else? I think about these questions um, more these days. And how do you encourage your team to remain true to themselves and work effectively? I think speak up, say what you believe in. Like, you know, what are the things that you want to do? I mean, uh, here, like, I don't really kind of like dictate the kind of stories that we want to do. We have an editorial strategy. I've worked on building an editorial strategy, um, which has buy-in from the team. But really, I tell the team, bring, the, bring, bring stories that you think are important in your communities. And I think that's like kind of empowering them, right? Um, I have lots of thoughts about the way stories are written and, you know, what we publish, the headlines. But um, I encourage people to bring their ideas and, and execute them. Um, I think that's that's the best uh, sort of like way to encourage people to be authentic. Yeah, and I think for some people, the risks are too high, aren't they? They can't afford to 
and journalism is shrinking as an industry and it feels like there's less and less opportunities. So whether people can feel like they can actually make the leap um, or whether actually they have to stay put and um, assimilate. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and we've seen that, I think, like in the past couple of years, I think a lot of people, I mean, for, for various reasons, we, we've talked about the great resignation a lot in the, in the past few years. And, you know, there are some friends who, who felt like they've, they've had it and they're going to struggle and do something else, but it just felt like, and I, and I see that as like, you know, a moment of realization where you're like drifting so far away from who you are as a person, um, and, and it's okay to take a break and realize like how you want to kind of like, you know, get back on track and be yourself. And for me, sort of, um, I don't know, like, you know, that, that, that moment was probably that, that pressure cooker feeling where I felt like I had to call my father and just let him know that like, you know, I've tried everything and it's very, very hard. And, you know, I think that was me being authentic to my, my, my emotions, mm -hmm. right? This, this sense that, you know, usually if you're a brown man, like left home, you don't show your emotions especially the parents um, that you come and like there's Facebook and you post stories about success and everybody kind of like, you know, congratulates you. And, and I thought that was a big moment for me to, to, to tell, to cry and tell my father that I was struggling and it was very hard and I was alone. And that sort of broke you open for yeah. change. Yeah. 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 Okay. Very powerful indeed. And it, thank you again so much for your time. Um, and your wisdom and sharing your journey. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me. I, I do like, you know, I, I, I just being able to talk about this actually feels liberating to me. Um, and, and I really appreciate the opportunity. So thank you. Speaking to Anup today, we've learned that authenticity can come at a real cost. And in his case, the cost was experiencing racism too, in some instances. Anup has demonstrated extraordinary resilience in his career and it feels clear to me that in order to succeed and be himself, he really had to find his own agency and the environment in which he could thrive in. I was really also very touched by the story he shared about opening up to his father. It almost felt like in being honest with him, he allowed himself to be honest with himself too. It felt like a key breakthrough moment. We have more such inspiring stories to share with you as a part of the Authentic Leadership series. To catch up, head to Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you don't want to miss any news from the Reuters Institute, you could also sign up to our weekly newsletter from our homepage or Twitter bio. Thank you for joining us.